seated. Our God is worthy. Our God is worthy. Amen. All right. Let's go to him now. We just sang praises to you, to your name, Lord. And Lord, right now, on the other side, in the throne room, 24 elders, living creatures, myriads upon myriads upon myriads of angels and of saints who've gone on before are praising your name. And Lord, we know this because you've given us a book. And this book is your word. You inspired your men to write your word. And I pray, Lord, as we open your word now uh, to the book of Deuteronomy, the teaching of your Torah, help us, Lord, to understand by your spirit, Lord. May we hear it. May we apply it. May we glorify your name as a result. And we give you thanks, Father, because, Lord, we know that that worship right now is great for an hour or two. But, Lord, worship is required uh, the rest of the week as well. Help us, Lord, to live in worship. And for this, we'll give you thanks and praise. Prepare us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a long time ago, I met a guy with the last name of Ruli. We called him Unruly Ruli. And, you know, he was one of those guys who, were, who was sort of unique. You know what I'm talking about? Now, the kid had talent, no doubt, especially when it came to all things Star Wars. Now, Airman Ruley's claim was that he saw the first Star Wars, movie, Star Wars movie that came out 110 times before we met. Now, I can believe it because he not only had the dialogue down perfectly, you know, as far as I can tell, I wasn't really a, a Star Wars-aholic, but uh, from what I can tell, it was, it was perfect. But not only that, he even had a perfect imitation of R2-D2 and so many other sound effects. Now, Unruly Really was a Christian, although eccentric, you could probably tell. Now, he was also authentic. And if he was struggling with something, he would let you know. You know, he didn't have a whole lot of social filters. And you know, that's kind of typical for a guy who's 19 years old, right? but really struggled with self-control and also materialism. Now, we would often, often hear really say, I got the I got us. You ever hear about the I got us? You know, I, he's like, I got to have this, you know, whatever it is. Now, and he wanted the best of everything. Now, whether it was a 250-watt stereo with gigantic speakers so that the entire dorm would be able to hear his music, you know, he also had reel-to-reel music, if you remember back in the day, right? Or if he, if he needed a bike or wanted to buy, he had to have the best bike there was so we can drive down and ride down to the Turagi Beach, which is, you know, on Guam. That's where I was stationed. But with all of this, Airman Ruli had the I got it. But, you know, I think if the truth were known, I think we would all deal, and we all do deal with the I got us from time to time. Would you agree? See, we know how things go. You know, we walk into a store, and we're fairly happy with our stuff. You know, we've got a good computer, you know, golf clubs or, or a phone or whatever. And so we go into a store just kind of browsing around. But you know what happens, right? A short time or even a long time later, what happens? You walk out with a new computer. 
or you walk out with a new phone. Now, the I got it strikes again. Now, I suppose getting something new to replace a perfectly good operational gadget is okay if you can afford it. But if we're not careful, we can begin to drift into the Tenth Commandment territory and wind up breaking it. What's the Tenth Commandment? It's coveting, right? Coveting is what I'm talking about. And of all the Ten Commandments, the last on the list deals with our heart. One author describes covetousness this way. Coveting is a basic and pervasive evil where it is the very root of so many forms of sin. Those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation, Paul tells Timothy, into a snare, into many senseless and hurtless desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction, 1 Timothy 6. It lies behind biblical examples of theft, Joshua 7, lying, 2 Kings 5, domestic trouble, Proverbs 15, and even murder, Ezekiel 22. In Colossians 3, 5, Paul actually termed it nothing less than idolatry. Kind of circles Luke, doesn't it? Idolatry in the 10th commandment all the way up to idolatry in the 1st commandment. All this and more because one's I got is got the best of them. Is there a way to deal with with what is so much a part of us? Now, we know that God gave Israel the Ten Commandments and especially the command to not covet. And new covenant followers of Christ are forbidden to practice coveting. But is there a battle plan given to us in Scripture to combat this basic and pervasive evil? Yes, there is. Yes, there is. It is found in our passage for today, Deuteronomy chapter 15, 1 to 23. Now, that's on page 176 in your pew Bible if you need that number. Now, we have in our passage for today, um, Deuteronomy 15. But let me give you the word for today that accompanies this passage, and the word is Shemitah. It's it's right there. So, I want you to say this word with me, Shemitah. Shemitah, yeah. Don't you like the way that sounds? Isn't that fun? Shemitah, Shemitah. Now, Shemitah is God's battle plan against covetousness, the evil that so easily besets us. Now, before we dive into the verses, let me describe what Shemitah is, how it operates, and how it affected the sons and daughters of Israel. Now, the Shemitah is, as the slide indicates, a release of a debt. Forgiveness is a way, but only one way of looking at this word. Now, imagine, if you will, two neighbors who are very close friends, John and Joe. Now, John borrowed from Joe an amazingly nice zero-turn lawnmower from Joe. It's his pride and joy. And though Joe has another very capable mower, the one he loaned John is his favorite. Now, imagine further that Joe's mower has been in John's possession for two summers. Now, John has fallen on hard times, you know, and Joe's mower has been a huge help with his best friend. And then the Shemitah happens. And John still has Joe's mower in his garage. And because of the Shemitah, Joe's mower now becomes John's, just like that. It has now changed owners. And Joe is not to ask for it back. That's the Shemitah at work. Now, 
How does that strike you? <laughs> with, with American ears, how does that strike you? Especially you guys who have amazing zero-turn lawnmowers. Now hold what's going on on the inside of you as we're going to hear our brother James read the first part of Deuteronomy 15, verses 1 to 11, for the details surrounding the seven-year Shemitah of stuff. Mike, you need a mic? You need a mic? And at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what has been lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner, you may exact it, but whatever is yours is with your brother is in your brother's hand, your hand shall release. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment, that I command you today for the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you and you shall lend to many nations but you shall not borrow and you shall not and you shall rule over many nations but they shall not rule over you if among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, The seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry out to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake, for there will never cease to be a poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. Now these verses, though difficult to hear with 21st century American ears, pretty straightforward, aren't they? And so I'm going to summarize for us. I'm going to explain it. Now, in verses 1 to 3, we see the manner of the Shemitah for the sons and daughters of Israel. Literally, whatever is borrowed and at the end of the seven years now becomes the property of the one who borrowed it. Free and clear. That's it. If it's in the possession of the borrower at the, at the Shemitah, that person now owns it. That's the issue. But I don't know about you, but that sort of rubs me the wrong way. What about you guys? You know, if I was living back in the day, I, I don't think I would like this law until, until I take two things to heart. The first, I remember that I was that, uh, the one that has uh, my stuff. It used to be my stuff. It's now it's his stuff, is my brother. It's a fellow covenant member. You know, Yahweh saved both of us by his grace. And there was a time when I owned nothing as well. I was a slave in Egypt, just like he was. My brother is my equal. 
he is also in need. And the saying certainly applies, you know, when we discover something of ours that's missing, right? We can't accuse someone of stealing it because we don't know what actually happened to it, but we know it's gone. And so with all that, what do we normally say? Well, that person needed it, what? More than I did, right? Well, the truth is, nothing that we have is ours in the absolute sense. Would you agree with me? We may have worked hard and saved our money to buy something that we highly value, but who really owns it all? It is the Lord. Ultimately, it's His. The proper perspective that we are to have with everything that is in our purview is that we are only managers of what ultimately belongs to him. Remember what commandment the Shemitah is explaining, what's attached to. It's coveting. So let's hold on to that thought because we will come back to it in a second. There's something else we need to remember regarding Shemitah. And notice what's going on in verse 3. So if you go back again, verse 3. When someone is outside of the covenant relationship and he sees Shemitah in action between fellow uh, Jews, fellow Israelites, what would that do to him, especially if the outsider has borrowed something from the Israelite? See, the Shemitah doesn't apply to him, but is only applicable to fellow Israelites. Now, in other words, the foreigner is still on the hook to give back and to pay back what, was, what he borrowed. But I see this as a great witness. Don't you? I really like what one author wrote about this. Shemitah was only between fellow Israelites. Because the foreigner was not part of the covenant, he could not enjoy its benefit. The Shemitah must have served as an inducement, enticement, an incentive to the foreigner to think about the privileges of the covenant fellowship, and he may want that for himself. Isn't that cool? Indeed, when the world sees God's people demonstrate love between one another to where they freely give of their things or their money to meet the needs of each other, now that's a powerful incentive for pagans to want to join the family. Now in verses 4 to 6, we see a conditional promise here. Namely, when God's people fully obey the law of Shemitah, the poor in the land will be no more. Everybody will have what they need. Now, of course, this is hypothetical, because as we read the sordid tale of Israel, we see everything but their being obedient and faithful to the law of Shemitah, right? And though it's not mentioned in this passage, Shemitah was to be applied to the tilling of their fields as well. Every seventh year, it was to lie fallow. They weren't to grow anything. It was just to be let, let go. Anything in the fields that grew naturally in the Shemitah year was for the poor of the land to glean for themselves. But Israel didn't obey the Lord in this. Not at all. They were too busy making money off of their agricultural products. But the Lord was serious about Israel's rebellion against the law of Shemitah and the land. How do we know this? Because part of the reason why the Lord sent Babylon to overrun his people and take them into exile is found in 2 Chronicles 36, 21, it's about the tilling of the land. Here's what he says. It was to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. They didn't do Shemitah with their land, and God says, you're not going to do it? I'm going to do it for you. 
That's, that's the issue. Because whose, whose land is it ultimately? It's the Lord's land. Now, the Lord through Moses also promised that Israel was going to enjoy great economic influence in the nations round about them. The Lord would be their endless supply that would benefit the nations. But their disobedience would render that conditional promise null and void. Now, it may be a little bit better now that Israel's back in their land and, you know, they're a nation again. And look how much stuff is going on in Israel. It's amazing the stuff that's happening there. So we see now that the manner of the Shemitah and the Lord's conditional promise about the Shemitah. And now let's look at the proper attitude of the creditor faithfully practicing Shemitah. In a word, an open hand, an open heart to meet the needs of the needy brother. Again, we're talking here about fellow covenant members. In verse 7, for example, he says, don't harden your heart or shut your hand against him. In verse 8, lend to him what he needs, whatever it is. And Moses even addresses what I'm sure would be a powerful temptation here. And the scenario is like this. What if one's brother seeks to borrow something to meet his need at the 11th month, third week, with Shemitah right around the corner? What are you going to do with this? The one who loans this stuff just knows it will never be paid back before the deadline. And so what does that mean? That guy now will own it. So what then, Moses? What do you do with this? And Moses says, no matter. Do it anyway with a good attitude. <laughs> you know how it is, right? You know, when, when you have a bad attitude and you're washing somebody's feet, be careful of the temperature of the water, <laughs> right? In verse 9, he says, don't allow your eye to look grudgingly. And we're going to see this in a little bit. In verse 10, give to him freely. Your heart shall not be grudging. Again, your heart. Verse 11, open wide your hand. So what's happening here? In a word, the Lord is training them to overcome their igatas. The heart of coveting can really be summed up in one word in this way, and the word is mine. Mine. That's the heart of coveting, isn't it? It was true in Israel's day. It is true in our day as well. And we're going to apply this to our circumstances in a little bit. So get ready, buckle up. <laughs> but for God's people to meet the material or financial needs of their fellow covenant members, what does that do? It softens their hearts and lessens the power of what I call the spiritual Velcro that we all have on our hands when it comes to material possessions. Practicing Shemitah makes theirs, our hands, more of a nonstick surface. And then we can let the things that we have go to meet the needs of others. Because generosity will then reign in the heart of one who follows Yahweh. Well, that was a seven-year Shemitah concerning stuff. And in verses 12 to 18, Moses now turns to a six-year Shemitah regarding the destitute among fellow Israelites. And I'm going to have Shirley read these verses. Microphone. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. 
And when you let him go free from you, you should not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. But if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household, since he is well off with you, then you shall take an awl and put it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave, you shall do the same. It shall not seem hard to you when you let him go free from you, for at half the cost of a hired worker, he has served you six years. So the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. Now, if you hadn't noticed, this passage addresses an issue that is supercharged in our world today. And that word is slavery. I'll say it. I'll say the S word, slavery. But let me point out the crucial difference between what's going on here and what Israel experienced decades before Moses addressed this and what a number of images of God experienced in the early days of even our own country. And the difference is volunteer versus coercion. Volunteer versus coercion. All around the world, and we know this if we know our history, and down through the ages, practically since people have been on this mud ball we call the earth, imagers of God have enslaved other imagers. Isn't that true? Sometimes it was a result of conquest. Sometimes a more powerful nation just simply pronounced an edict and throwing the helpless into a state of chattel slavery. You know, it's been said that chattel slavery is like having tools that talk, basically. But in this section that Shirley just read, slavery is real. There is the slave, and there is the master. But it was a voluntary slavery, more akin to indentured servitude. But the slave was still owned by the master. The master provided basic essentials, and the slave provided free labor. That's the way it was right there. Not only was the indentured servitude voluntary, though, it was limited. Six years max, the master was to release the slave. It was the master's shmita. Unless, unless the slave wanted to remain as an indentured servant. See, there was a reason why the person sold himself to the master. And what was that? To use a, I guess, a... Like a, let me just say it, I ain't got no food, right? <laughs> I ain't got nothing. And so he had to find a way to support himself, and that's what he did. He sold himself as a slave to a fellow Israelite. This person had to eat, but then what happened? As time would go on, a relationship may have been built between the master and the slave. And then maybe the servant would conclude, I have it pretty good around here, you know? I've got three hots in the cot, and I've got a good relationship with my master. I think I'm going to stick around for a while. And the sign of a permanent servitude was a pierced ear. But for the most part, indentured slavery was for a limited time. It wasn't for the entire lifetime of the individual. And when the six years max was up, the master let the slave go free. 
But he was to load him up with good things. And he was to let him go with a generous heart. Generosity was the issue here. Things that would prevent him from falling back into destitute poverty. The reason why he was sold himself into slavery in the first place. He needed stuff so he wouldn't go back there. Again, there was no welfare system in Israel, right? Individuals took care of one another just like we in the body of Christ are to take care of one another. Now, the last part of the chapter has to do not so much with the law of Shemitah in a direct way, but of the principle found in Shemitah. And the principle is loud and clear. It has to do with their firstborn animals. They were treated special. And when the time was right, they were to properly sacrifice them as a reminder that God owns every firstborn which comes out of the womb, whether animal or human. And with this in mind, Herbie is going to read this part of the Shemitah law, Deuteronomy 15, 19 to 23. Good, I see the mic coming. That's great. And all the firstborn males that are born of your herd and flock you shall dedicate to the Lord your God. You shall do no work with the firstborn of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of your flock. You shall eat it, you and your household, before the Lord your God, year by year, at the place that the Lord will choose. But if it has any blemish, if it is lame or blind, or has any serious blemish, whatever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. You shall eat it within your towns. The unclean and the clean alike may eat it, as though it were a gazelle or a deer. Only you shall not eat its blood. You shall pour it out on the ground like water. Now, having heard this, I'm sure you might be thinking, what in the world does this have to do with the Shemitah law? Think principle here, though, rather than specifics. Remember that Shemitah's basic idea means release, a remission. In this case, it was a reminder of what happened to Israel back in Egypt. Now, we know the story, don't we? We just heard about it in the, in the Seder. You know, some of us had participated in that. God told Moses to tell Pharaoh to let his people to go, to go, to release them. But Pharaoh's failure would cost him dearly. Exodus 4, the Lord says to Moses, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And this is the point. One of the reasons, humanly speaking, that Israel was standing before Moses on the day that he was talking about this, getting them ready to enter in the promised land, was because of release of Shemitah. Pharaoh released Shemitah. Pharaoh released Yahweh's firstborn son. But tragically, it cost the life of the son of Egypt's king in the process. In short, the king of Egypt performed a Shemitah of sorts. And the sacrificing of the firstborn animals was God's way of reminding them that as a nation, Israel was Yahweh's firstborn son. And though Yahweh coerced Pharaoh to do so, the king performed Shemitah, setting Israel free. He released them finally. Pharaoh could not say mine when it came to Yahweh's son. It was as simple but as powerful as that. So, what do we do as Christians in the 21st century with this? 
Certainly we don't obey the law of Shemitah, do we? Where our borrower keeps what is ours? Do we? <laughs> huh? Not voluntarily, yes. As followers of Jesus, though, have done down through the centuries, we don't obey the Shemitah once every seven years. No. We obey it perpetually. We are always to be in a Shemitah state of mind and heart. You might be thinking, Pastor, you just, <laughs> are you kidding me? Really? That we can do this? We're supposed to be obeying Shemitah all the time? A little bit stretched, don't you think? And I say, nope. And what I hope to help us understand today is that the key to true love and unity and even ministry involves us perpetually applying Shemitah. Now, again, the principle of Shemitah, that's what I'm talking about. Again, let me remind us of the heart of Shemitah. It means release. It means letting go. Letting go of what we perceive is ours materially. Living with the conviction that as followers of Christ, everything that we have and everything that we are is ultimately whose? His. The Lord has given us biological life. If you are breathing, the Lord has given you biological life. Would you agree? He has also given us eternal life in Christ. And we heard an amazing testimony this morning about the Lord giving a brother in Christ eternal life. As we celebrate the resurrection of King Jesus last Lord's Day, Lord's Day, we know that Christ perfectly did the will of the Father. God raised his son from the dead, seated him at his right hand with the Father having given his son all authority in heaven and on earth. Praise him. We heard this today from Brother Greg. He, he quoted the, the words of Jesus. And so what this means for us and for us to live out the perpetual Shemitah, how are we to do this? How do we do it? Christ has begun, here's the point, he's begun to rule and to reign. He has bought and paid for all nations. And in the big picture, big picture sense, there is one kingdom with Christ as the king. It is true that there are many sub-kingdoms overall. I mean, Iraq, I think, is, refers to himself as a kingdom. But overall, there is one kingdom, and Christ is king. It's just a matter of time till he returns, and he completely rules every kingdom here on this planet. Now, Christ's life, death, resurrection, and present reign at the right hand of the Father means that the kingdom of God has begun. And that means for all of Christ's disciples, two words, two principles have become true. And these two principles, these two words, are to characterize us. And the more loyally we show him as we follow our Lord, the more loyalty we have, the more prominent these two principles will be in our lives. And what are those two principles? The principle of give and the principle of forgive. Give and forgive. And the foundation upon which these words stand as followers of Jesus is Shemitah. The release, the release. From beginning to end, our lives as Christians are to display perpetual, open-handed generosity of the things the Lord has graciously entrusted to us. And as we do, 
what happens to the pervasive evil that resides in our hearts, namely coveting? What happens to that? It has less of a hold on us. How many places in the New Testament show Christ followers with open hands and hearts at various levels of being released from covetousness? I don't know about you, but I'm not completely free of that. I've got a ways to go, and I think you guys do too, right? And then, depending on the level that I am as far as being released from it, what can I do? I can then turn around, and I can then give my stuff to others who have need. Now, allow me to give you a challenge. As you read through the New Testament, take note of the times that Christ and others address material possessions and what to do with them and how to handle them. Also take note of how the early Christians were guided as well by the give principle. And let me give you just a few places to whet your appetite as we talk about this. In Luke chapter 3, for example, John the Baptist was the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. He baptized and he preached repentance. And that's a great thing. But he insisted that it wasn't enough to merely turn from sin. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance is what he said. And the people asked him, okay, John, if that's the case, what do we do? How do we apply this? And what did John say? Shemitah. That's what he said. Well, not really those words. But in principle, he said, release yourself from claiming that all you have is your own. Whoever has two tunics, give the person who has none. And whoever has food is to do the same thing. Share your food. It's Shemitah. Release it. Release it. In the greatest sermon Jesus ever, or ever preached, Jesus said Shemitah. Again, not Shemitah, but the principle. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, when, not if, but when you give to the needy. Later in the same chapter, in essence, he said Shemitah again. Verse 23 he mentioned those who have bad eyes or a bad eye. Now, if we were part of Jesus' audience listening to this, we would know immediately what it means. And what it means is stinginess with stuff. That's what a bad eye is. Now, and, and, and really, it's, it's like an appalling lack of Shemitah. Remember what we just read earlier in Deuteronomy where Moses instructed the one loaning something to his brother says, don't look with a bad eye or don't look grudgingly with your eyes on your brother if they have a need. In Matthew 6, 24, Jesus said, it is impossible to practice Shemitah, open-handed generosity, to meet the needs of those in the family of God if one is devoted to mammon. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus said, Shemitah. Well, again, you know what I'm talking about. Give to everyone who begs of you. Again, Shemitah, open-handed generosity. The Lord said in Luke 6.35, and he said, Shemitah then, even when it comes to how his disciples are to treat their enemies. Here's what he says. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. If that's not Shemitah, I don't know what is, right? And your reward will be great and you will be sons and daughters of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Time fails us to even begin to dive into how the early church 
practiced Shemitah. When they were filled with the Spirit, and you look through the Acts chapters 1 through 6, you'll see what happened. They practiced open-handed generosity all the time there. And don't forget Paul's description of Shemitah in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 in Principles of Giving. And the capstone of, of this passage was these simple words, God loves a cheerful giver, one who faithfully practices Shemitah. Now, there's so much more that we can and we should say about this. <laughs> but we got to go on. The clock is unkind, yes. But now, let's talk a little bit about the forgive principle. You know, we've talked about the give principle. Let's talk about the forgive principle. Remember that Shemitah means release. It literally means to forgive. And as followers of Jesus, we are to demonstrate perpetual Shemitah by forgiving those who have sinned against us. To forgive means to let it go. And in a nutshell, we are to release ourselves from the right to retaliate when someone offends us, when someone hurts us, when someone sins against us. We need to release that right and entrust ourselves to the Lord. Imagine the most expensive, most delicate glass ball ever made. Big enough to fit into your hand. And now imagine that you are best friends with the owner of this most exquisite piece of art. Your friend invites you over to his house. There in full display out in the open is this glass ball that you've heard so much about and that he has talked about. And after exchanging pleasantries, your friend has to leave the room to go take an emergency phone call. The most beautiful glass ball ever made is right there, and you're alone in the room. <laughs> I see some people. I know where I'm going with this. It's your friend's pride and joy. The temptation gets too much for you. So you get up. You go over to the glass ball. It really is magnificent. And you're taken in by its beauty. And all of a sudden, your friend comes back into the room. And you are completely startled. Now what? What do you do with this? There's no way you can pay him for it. Sorry? <laughs> Doesn't just seem to cut it, does it? So you stand there, brokenhearted and helpless at the shattered ball at your feet. And now your friend has a couple of options, doesn't he? He could force you to retrieve every shard of glass and force you to put it back together again. <laughs> How possible would that be? He could break off his relationship with you and never see you again. He could sue the pants off of you and try to get something back. He could try to force you to make arrangements and somehow pay him back an impossible situation. Or he could forgive to release you of the debt, to cancel it, to perform a Shemitah. See, he is the absolute creditor here, isn't he? And you are totally indebted to him. And so your friend, with sadness, grieving his loss, tells you, as one who is in despair, 
as one who is deserving the worst from your friend, you hear these words, I forgive you. I release you from the debt. What an amazing thing that would be, wouldn't it? What a relief. But you know, our hearts are like this exquisite glass bottle. It's one of a kind. Every heart is different, right? Because we live in a broken world full of sin and wickedness, we all stand a pretty good chance of experiencing a broken heart or breaking the heart of someone that you love, even in the family of God. And my guess is that we all have done this. We've received a broken heart, and we have broken other people's hearts. And my guess is that we need to deal with some of these things. Now, it may have been a long time ago that this happened, or multiple times, or it may have just happened yesterday. Who knows? The closest one to you has betrayed your trust, done something to you that has thoroughly <laughs> baked your bagels, as someone had put it. And now your heart, like that glass ball, is shattered. A million pieces. How can an exquisite glass ball be put back together, even if you had all the shards? Impossible. So what can you do if you're the one with a broken heart? Perform shmupa. Release yourself of the right for payback. See, this person really did you wrong. This person really did sin against you. But when you and I perform Shemitah, here's how it happens. It begins by going to the Lord and telling him, Lord, here is my shattered heart. A million pieces. And only you, the creator of hearts, can put it back together. You know, Jesus knew a thing or two about this sort of thing. He lived with a broken heart. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As he was being crucified, our Lord had a prayer request passing over his lips over and over again. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus, who could have called down thousands and thousands of angels to obliterate every person there, chose not to do that. Instead, what did he do? Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Perpetual Shemitah is what he lived in. As a perfect Lord, he never told his followers to do something that he refused to do. Father, Forgive them. And later, Paul put it like this in his letter to his friends in Ephesus. He said, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven you. God in Christ has forgiven you. And this word as means to the same degree as Christ has forgiven you. And so an obvious question at this point. How many sins has God forgiven you in Christ? How much sin do you now carry because of Christ? Go thou and do likewise.
in a word, we are to live in perpetual Shemitah. We are to live a life of constant release. And may the Lord enable us to release ourselves from mind. Whether we're convinced we have a right to our things or feel that we have a right to continue to nurse, to nurse our hurt, damaged emotions, we need to release them. All of them. Release all of these things into the hand of the Lord. He is ever faithful, isn't he? He's ever gracious. He's ever merciful and kind to his people and even to those who could not care less about him. Let's not be like unruly, really. <laughs> Let's be done with the I got us. May we know the joy of why the Lord created us in the first place is to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. And gloriously, the only way we can do that is to live in perpetual Shemitah. So I think now will be a very appropriate time for us to spend a moment just to sit before the Lord's presence and ask the Lord, Lord, how much of the I got is, are in my, is in my heart? <laughs> then ask the Lord to deal with it, with us. Ask him to help us by his spirit to simply release it to him. Let's release our firm grip on things and our firm grip on our past and present hurt. And then turn right around and with freedom of soul, begin to serve others in Jesus' name. See, the Lord promises us a blessing of a closer walk with him as we do. So let's live in the, the blessing of perpetual Shemitah for the sake of King Jesus, the one who saved us perpetually releasing us from our sins. To him be the glory. And so let's just spend a moment asking the Lord to search our hearts, to help us, and then for us to release in his presence these things that we so desperately need to release. Let's bow together in prayer. Sometimes it doesn't seem fair <laughs> that you create us with emotion. Sometimes, at least I do anyway, sometimes I wish I could turn my emotions off. And I have to deal with these kinds of things. These desires that I have to hold on to my stuff, to nurse grudges of even little slights people have done against me. Lord, this human condition. We want to be in charge. But Lord, you told us in your word today that uh, we are not really in charge of anything. Lord, you own it all. And Lord, you've given us 
not just the example, but the power to let go and to release things that people have done against us, sin. Lord, we know also in your word, and we didn't deal with that today, but in your word, you tell us how to deal with those who've sinned against us. We are to confront them. We're to help them, not to get back at them, not to retaliate, but to help them to repent. Because, Lord, that's causing them hurt too. But, Lord, for us who've been hurt, Lord, it's so easy for us to nurse grudges. It's so easy for us to hold on to these things and then become bitter. That's what your word tells us if we refuse to forgive. And so, Lord, I thank you for this ancient book called Deuteronomy. I thank you that it is just as up-to-date as tomorrow's newspaper. Lord, you know our hearts. And so I pray, Father, that you would help us as we've just begun this work here, that you will continue to help us to let go of things, to let go of the firm grip that we so often have on stuff, to let, us, to let go of the firm grip that we often have uh, with, with, these, with these emotions um, that we are, we are holding back and we are, we are shutting ourselves off because we don't want to get hurt again. Lord Jesus, you want us to let it go. So may we do that. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your death for us. That when you died, you died for all of our sin. Past, present, and future. And that we can have insurance. And we can follow you. And Lord, we know that as disciples, we are going to blow it. And you know that too. I thank you for your grace and for your mercy and for your kindness to us. Thank you, Lord, for telling us that if we come to you, then you will in no wise cast us out. We thank you for that assurance. Help us, Lord, to be faithful and to walk with you and to love you and serve you because you've loved us and served us first. I thank you now, Lord, for this time that we can go and we can turn uh, to yet a couple more activities of worship. Help us, Lord, to worship you in spirit and in truth by singing and by giving. And may our worship of you be something that you would be pleased with. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.